Chapter 3 Hi, I'm David Morris, managing attorney of the Forrest Firm's Durham, North Carolina office, where we represent clients in North Carolina and throughout the world in their business transactions. As a lawyer who has worked with many startups, and as an entrepreneur myself, I know that fundraising can be all-consuming, but it's absolutely necessary to the success of your business, both short-term and long-term. I've seen founders get caught up in the idea that their business is going to disrupt their industry, and maybe it will but they lose sight of the terms of the investment agreement and lose control of their company. As a startup founder wearing the banker's hat, you need to be skilled at negotiating, finding the right kind of capital to fund your business, understanding your negotiable and non-negotiable terms, and knowing when it's time to walk away from the wrong deals. David Gardner has mentored hundreds of startup founders and invested millions, so he has a unique insight into what you need to do in order to be successful. Chapter 3. The Banker's Hat So you've completed your model, you've done your homework, and feel good about your starting assumptions. You understand and are ready to defend your model slash plan, and you know how much starting capital you are going to need. Now it's time to put on the banker's hat and go raise some money. Many entrepreneurs at this point turn to friends and family for their initial capital. I'm not a big fan of this. Warren Buffett was once asked if losing his money on a venture was his worst-case scenario, to which he responded, No, it feels far worse to lose someone else's money. Nowhere is this truer than when it comes to family and friends. I encourage entrepreneurs raising capital to exhaust all other possible options first before turning to friends and family. The problem with friends and family money is that it is often just too easy to get. These investors typically aren't critical enough of your plan and don't really add anything to your venture other than capital. Furthermore, it's just not wise for them to make a single angel investment. Failure rates are very high in early-stage ventures, which is why angel investors diversify their portfolios, so it's pretty narcissistic and selfish to ask your friends and family to do something that even more experienced investors are unwilling to do. There are many reasons to first seek out seasoned individual angel investors, angel investment groups, and seed round venture capital funds. First of all, this gives you an opportunity to meet investors and potential advisors who may be able to provide much more than just capital to your venture. Second, if you are unable to persuade even one sophisticated investor into backing your venture, then you probably should seriously reevaluate your plan. These investors seek out promising opportunities and are willing to take larger risks. If you've talked to several and no one's interested, then I'd encourage you to seriously rethink your venture, or at least the parts with which potential investors have concerns. Find out why they aren't interested. Maybe you've overlooked some critically important aspect. I'm not saying to give up. Just rethink. Maybe you need to reposition your offer target a different market, or raise a larger or smaller amount of capital. Don't just focus on selling potential investors. Approach them as potential advisors and ask them to challenge your reasoning and plan. Above all else, listen. This will serve you well and communicate that you are coachable, 
a character trait smart investors love to see. Fundraising at any stage of your business can consume vast amounts of your time, time that could be used to grow your business organically. Venture capitalists, VCs, are the worst offenders when it comes to wasting your precious time. They are usually willing to meet with you so long as you cover your own travel cost. This is how they learn about new promising technologies and keep abreast of what's going on in various market sectors. Venture capitalists never sign non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, so there's always a chance that they might pick up something from you that could be beneficial to one of their portfolio companies. So don't get too excited just because a VC agrees to meet with you. The best way to make the inefficient process of fundraising as efficient as possible is to do your research. First, decide what type of investor you want to approach. Angel and angel groups are usually only good for small rounds, i.e. under 500K. Venture capitalists fall into different categories depending on their size and the focus of their fund. A few will do very early-stage, high-risk seed rounds, but most limit these investments with strict criteria, such as revenues above $2 million. Some funds are restricted to specific market sectors, such as healthcare or clean energy technologies. A few will only invest in serial entrepreneurs with at least one successful exit behind them. If you fly up to meet with these guys and you're a first-time jockey, then you will have wasted precious time and capital. Don't waste time trying to put your round company idea into a square funding hole. Break out your trusty spreadsheet and start a list of potential investors. There are various attributes you should include on your list as you decide which investors to approach. One of these variables is proximity. Some angel investors and all VCs like to stay involved in the ventures they back and don't like to waste a lot of time traveling. So the closer the investor is to where you are or plan to be, the higher the probability of an investment. West Coast VCs are known for being more aggressive than typical East Coast VCs in investing in big ideas at earlier stages, but they hate flying to the East Coast for board meetings. If you are on the West Coast, or willing to move your company there, then your odds of getting an investment from these guys improves dramatically. If you fall into this category, then West Coast VCs should be moved up on your spreadsheet. Finding investors who have made money doing something similar to your proposed offering is another important criterion. Look over the portfolio companies listed on a VC's website. Is this firm investing in companies similar to yours? Do they like B2C e-commerce plays or B2B enterprise software deals or both? Don't worry too much about competing in some ways with another of their listed portfolio companies. Many VC will place multiple bets when they like a market sector, often betting as much on the sector as on a specific company. For example, if a VC made a 50x return in their last fund on one of their portfolio companies that was in the online publishing space, then they are more likely to understand and like that space. To get an investment done with any VC, you need a champion within that firm. Look over the biographies of each partner on the firm's website and see if there is someone who would really understand and be comfortable with what you are proposing. The other partners will look to this person for advice concerning your venture. If your idea and plan are solid, 
then the closer your champion's familiarity with what you are trying to do, the better your chances of winning him or her over and getting an investment. If you don't see anyone on the VC team with some background in what you are doing, then it is unlikely that you will find the required champion you need. Another factor for your list is to know where a VC's fund is in its life cycle. When a VC firm first opens a new fund, they have a lot of money to invest and tend to be more aggressive in doing deals. VCs tend to get much more selective towards the end of their fund when they know that they can only do one or two more deals. The size of the fund is also important. The fund managers only have so much time and it can cost them just as much time to do a small investment as to do a large one. Usually, a $200 million fund is not going to be deploying it in 250K rounds, but a $10 million fund might. Don't forget to include family funds. Wealthy individuals sometimes establish a small fund and have one of their kids, whichever one got an MBA, to run it. These funds are typically evergreen and often get less deal flow. I have found them less stringent with their criteria than a typical VC. Often, the patriarch's passions and interest are as big of a factor as financial returns to these groups. There aren't many venture capitalists that do very early-stage or pre-revenue round investing for a first-time entrepreneur. For your initial capital, you are most likely going to need to approach angels. Angel investors and angels groups typically aren't professional full-time investors like the VCs. Angels may be wealthy individuals or ex-entrepreneurs themselves who spend some of their time looking for local opportunities. They can be very sophisticated investors or occasionally not sophisticated at all. They focus on investing in very early-stage ventures where the company valuations are low enough that their smaller-size investments can still buy a good chunk of equity. They are not typically limited by a fund's investment criteria but they are very partial towards what they know and understand given their individual career experience. Angels typically don't require a proven business model. They are willing to assume more risk on unproven business plans in exchange for higher potential rewards. Angel groups come in two primary flavors, those with a group fund and those without. I have been a member of several angel groups. They are all different. Those with a fund usually write bigger checks, but may take a lot longer to do so. Some angel groups are led by a few VC wannabes that will put entrepreneurs through a time-consuming and hellish due diligence process. Most of these groups only meet once a month, and even due diligence team members can have a hard time scheduling meetings around their day jobs. They sometimes lock entrepreneurs down from raising money elsewhere via no-shop clause in their term sheet and then take months to complete the due diligence. Even if the diligence committee does recommend an investment, a single member can criticize your idea right before the full membership vote and kill your deal. This said, angel groups do fund deals and often have a member or two in the group with some specific industry knowledge and connections that can be helpful. In my experience as an entrepreneur, the angel groups without a shared fund seem to be more effective in that an entrepreneur needs to only sell one member in the group to actually raise some money. Even if some members of the group really hate your idea, they won't try to kill it publicly because they have no money in a shared fund that they feel they need to protect. These are really big generalizations, I admit. Each angel group is different depending on its size, member mix, and leadership.
When it comes to fundraising, just as it is with any sales process, it is best to get a referral if possible. Even if you know whom to contact, try to find an introduction through someone before knocking on the front door. Make as many contacts as you can on LinkedIn and ask the angels and advisors you meet for referrals. When you come through the generic door, you are viewed as a salesperson wanting something. However, if you come through a side door, there is a perceived serendipity in your arrival, i.e. a unique opportunity that perhaps others don't know about or a deal that's not been shopped around. You no longer need a written detailed business plan. Most investors prefer just a one to two page executive summary, your slide deck, and your spreadsheet model. These can be reviewed quickly and represent the real meat of the opportunity, so don't waste time writing a thesis. I encourage startup entrepreneurs today to model their businesses not to run out of money. This may sound obvious, but there have been times in the past, and I'm sure we will see them again, when many models were built to run out of money in favor of maximum growth until that point. Additional rounds of funding were anticipated and entrepreneurs wanted to maximize their valuations via the strongest top-of-line growth possible. Those days are gone for now, and it is far too risky to let your company run dry today. You may get the funding you need, but most investors today will see that you are running out of options and take advantage of your situation by offering you fire sale valuations. It will mean being more conservative and navigating slower controlled growth, but I encourage early stage companies to manage their ventures towards a cash flow positive state. I'm not opposed to raising more money to grow faster when that makes sense, but I think this should be done from a position of strength and not desperation. Keep in mind that the success of your company and you personally holding on to some meaningful equity are not necessarily the same thing. I've had friends who founded and ultimately grew large successful companies, but because of cash flow issues and several rounds of funding at lower valuations than previous rounds, down rounds, they had so little ownership left that they really felt no different than any other hired worker. I recently had one of my early stage investors go public with a successful IPO, but because of several down rounds of equity dilution early on, I did not even get my original investment back. There are some venture capitalists affectionately referred to as vulture capitalists that specialize in finding distressed companies and releasing them of as much equity as possible. It's really tough when you find yourself running out of money and your back is up against the wall. Will you lay off a bunch of friends and critically important people? Or will you choose to accept money under onerous terms from people you really don't want to control your business? If you want to hold on to some meaningful equity while quickly growing your company, mind your cash flow and avoid those down rounds of funding. The banker's hat is not just something you put on when you are starting your venture. Almost all ventures experience cash flow issues at some point, especially in the early stages. Both slow growth and fast growth can cause cash flow issues. The faster you grow, the more often you need money to finance that growth rate. Don't assume that working capital has to come from an investor. There are many ways to get working capital that do not involve diluting your equity. Customers and potential customers are often willing to fund R&D projects in exchange for special pricing or terms. Resellers are sometimes willing to purchase certain rights, such as territories or exclusivity, to certain vertical markets for a time. The best way of all to generate capital is fast organic growth.
which is achieved foremost by getting your product and sales model as accurate as quickly as possible. We'll discuss this more later. Wearing your banker's hat well is more than just good financial planning. It is also about being creative. I met with an entrepreneur a few years ago, and I was immediately struck by how tired and beaten he looked. His corporate training business had grown quickly, but then a sharp decline in the economy slowed his sales down dramatically, just as he had made some big investments in R&D and infrastructure. I could see the anguish and sleepless nights in his face. He was also carrying around the guilt of having to lay several people off who had recently left good jobs to come work with him. He was desperately looking for a way to keep his boat afloat and almost immediately offered to sell me equity well below its market value. I said as an investor that I'd be interested in that deal, but I've been an entrepreneur many times longer than I've been an investor. Most entrepreneurs can relate to the image of founders staring up at the ceiling in the middle of the night, knowing that they are running out of airspeed, altitude, and options. I told this distressed entrepreneur that I'd consider his offer only if he first tried something first. I asked him to call his 10 best customers and offer them a 5% discount if they prepaid for a year of his services in advance. We met again two weeks later, and as he entered the restaurant, I was immediately impressed with his transformation. He was smiling and walked like a man with a purpose, even a spring in his step. He told me that most of the companies he called agreed to take the discount and that in short order, his cash flow problem should be over. I missed out on a vulture capital deal, but I made a lifelong friend who has now worked successfully with me on several other ventures. Remember that your best customers and even creditors are the last people on earth that want to see you run out of money. They will often work with you if you are upfront with them and offer creative solutions. Of all the various types of investors, strategic investors are by far my favorite. When you raise capital, a strategic investor is almost always preferred to a purely financial investor. Strategic investors are customers, integrators, resellers, suppliers, or other business partners that consider what you do to be a major benefit to their core business. They tend to offer better terms than a purely financial investor and bring much more to the table by way of advice, referrals, and other industry-specific insights. I started a software company once that enabled healthcare providers to share patient information in a more secure and efficient way. By far, the largest payer in my home state of North Carolina was Blue Cross and Blue Shield, BCBS. I was able to convince the management team that having a shared workflow with the major hospitals would reduce their administrative costs dramatically, and that the providers did not trust the payers to be the keepers of that workflow process. As a neutral third party, my company could serve as the trusted information exchange that both providers and payers could accept. The BCBS team agreed and made an investment. More importantly, they gave my little startup the introductions and credibility it desperately needed to sign on every hospital in the state that following year. The BCBS CEO even joined my board and became a friend as well as a mentor. Many large companies today have a strategic investments fund. Unlike venture capitalists, their primary goal is not just to maximize their return, but rather to stay abreast of industry trends, emerging technologies, and markets. They want to make money, but this is not their only goal. They often view their investments as pet projects, 
and spend a lot of time helping their entrepreneurs. The research, introductions, and credibility they afford can make your company. And they tend to offer much better valuations than other types of investors. Strategics often become marquee beta customers that you may not have been able to get had they not first become an investor. Anyone you are going to be selling to or buying from could be a cash flow partner. There are many clever ways to manage your cash flow that can dramatically reduce your need for startup and ongoing capital. You can approach financing from two directions, raise more investment capital or find a way to reduce your cash flow needs. Most entrepreneurs think only in terms of raising more capital and forget to think about approaching cash flow concerns from the other direction, reducing cash flow needs. I was recently working with a bright young lady with degrees in textile engineering and fashion from NCSU. She had come up with a clever way to laser print on denim that enabled unlimited patterns and designs. Her samples looked amazing, but it appeared that she was going to need a lot of working capital to buy material in bulk, have it printed on, and then move to a cut and sew factory. While running the numbers with her, I noticed that the majority of her manufacturing costs were going to the labor-intensive cut and sew vendor. I suggested that we take a road trip out to meet the factory owner. The factory owner was clearly impressed with our samples. After spending some time touring the factory and getting to know the owner, I offered him 5% of our company in exchange for floating our receivables for 60 days. He agreed on the spot. Since we sold to retailers who paid us on net 30 terms, this agreement was like having an extra million dollars in working capital. He also became a trusted advisor and partner. Had this pre-revenue entrepreneur raised a million dollars in starting capital at that time, she would have forfeited the majority of our equity and most likely not gained an industry insider advisor. Most first-time entrepreneurs don't realize how important cash flow management is. Watch your forecast and act quickly to head off potential cash flow problems. Depending on your business, always plan to keep a few months of payroll in the checkbook for the unexpected problem or opportunity. Don't hesitate to cut deals that cause you to pay more if they enable you to pay later. In a startup, money now is vastly more valuable than money later. Rather than jumping right into fundraising mode every time your checkbook lacks a few digits, think out of the box and find clever ways to reduce your need for cash. You will almost always get a better deal when managing cash flow from a supplier, partner, reseller, or customer than you will from a financial investor. Among their many uses, stock options are another great way to help manage cash flow. A stock option is the right to purchase company equity at a set low price or strike price. In a growing startup, these options can become very valuable as they vest become exercisable over an established time period. With limited funding, you are not going to be able to compete with larger companies when it comes to salary and benefits, but you can offer ownership to key players. Depending on the position and their track record for performance, these equity grants can range from 0.1% to 4% of your company. Making your key players owners in your business is a great way to motivate them and to manage cash flow. Giving away chunks of equity via options may seem to contradict my hold-on-to-your-equity advice, but stay with me here. Let's say you find the perfect person to lead your development or sales team. Maybe that person is making 180 k per year in corporate America. 
you can offer him or her 90 k in salary and a 100 k worth of stock options. This almost always works out better for you than raising the additional 100 k in cash from investors because the perceived value of the stock option can be subjective. I encourage key hires to take only enough salary to meet their basic living requirements and to take the rest in options. I often tell them that no one ever got rich taking salary. It's all about the equity, so let's swing for the fences together. If startup cash flow management is all about money now versus later, then stock options are a good tool. Unlike the equity you sell, a lot of stock options you grant will never vest. Some hires will not stay for the full vesting period, and others you will need to let go for performance reasons. Besides the productivity benefits of motivational ownership, if the company is growing, then the key hires will remain excited about their options and will most likely not push for as big of a salary increase in year two and three. I never regret giving out stock options because if recipients don't earn them, they will be gone, fired. If they do earn them, then I am happy to see them get a big check when the company is sold. Let's say you have done everything you can to minimize your cash flow needs, but still require equity financing to raise working capital. Once you have an interested investor, it's time to put on your negotiator's hat, which we will discuss in a later chapter. It is the interested investor's responsibility to present you with a term sheet, which is basically a high-level outline of the terms by which they would be willing to invest. If you can't agree on high-level terms, then there's no reason to incur attorney fees to paper a final agreement. The most important terms include how much money they will invest and at what valuation. The valuation is how much money they think your company or business plan is worth at the time of the investment. Don't be afraid to walk away from a deal if the terms are not reasonable. It is better to keep looking or even walk away from your idea than to work yourself silly for years in a venture in which you have little or no equity after a few rounds of funding. Investors will often present a standard term sheet, as if it's a take-it-or-leave-it deal. I assure you that all terms are negotiable, and a good attorney will present you with a number of compromises with which to counter an offer. For example, if you can't agree on a valuation, then perhaps you can agree on a sliding scale by which the valuation changes if certain revenue or other milestones are achieved by certain dates. If you achieve the milestone, then you have proven that the higher valuation was merited, and if you don't, at least you know that the valuation being offered was reasonable. Be careful with this. We entrepreneurs tend to be very optimistic people. There are many such compromises, and each can have positive and negative effects. Remember that although you are on opposite sides of the table now, your investor will ultimately become your partner in your venture. So try to ensure that everyone gets a reasonable deal and that you are forthcoming with all relevant information. I could write an entire book just on the ramifications of the various terms and how they get negotiated. But until you are in the midst of actually doing a deal, this would probably just put you to sleep. For now, I'll just emphasize the importance of getting a good corporate law attorney who does a lot of early-stage investment deals similar to yours and in your geography. Let your counsel guide you through the terms being offered, their ramifications, what's typical, and where you should push back. I will make one terms-related suggestion here for first-time entrepreneurs that many attorneys fail to fully appreciate. Try to keep control of your exit, i.e., 
when you want to sell your company. Most successful ventures don't exit via a public offering, IPO. They get acquired. If you agree to terms that give an investor control over when or how you can exit your venture, then you are pretty much stuck working for that investor for as long as it takes. Your first exit can significantly change your lifestyle for the better and empower you to do another venture without outside funding. However, an early exit may not be what your investors want. They might be willing to continue to roll the dice because they need to show a greater than five times return, whereas you might be very happy to walk away with a few million in your pocket. There are some things you can do to improve your perceived valuation. Valuations go up as risk is diminished, so try to think of ways to make your venture appear less risky. Building even a simple prototype of your software or product can help. Mock up the user interface so investors can see how intuitive and real your idea is, even if there is nothing behind the presentation layer of your code. It makes it real for those who have trouble visualizing, and it sounds less risky to say that you need funding to finish your software rather than to begin building your software. If you can get a few letters of intent slash interest, LOI, from potential customers, it will go a long ways towards showing the marketability of your offering. These are just simple non-binding statements on letterhead stating that a company is interested in buying, integrating with, or reselling your product once it is ready. If you can attract some recognized subject matter experts or proven captains of industry on your board of directors or advisory board, they can also lend credibility to your idea. Offer them some stock options, or better yet, try to get them to put a little money in on top of the options you give them for their board service. Investors will view their involvement as an endorsement and take comfort that those in the know aren't afraid to be associated with your idea. Many factors can go into determining your company's valuation, such as the size of your market, market addressability, first mover advantage, competition, intellectual property, etc. You should have a working knowledge of what each of these represent and how it is calculated. Much has been written and is available on these topics, so I'll avoid reinventing the wheel. When you present to potential investors, try to sound very focused on what you plan to accomplish. You may have all kinds of functionality you could add and other markets you could enter, but if you paint a picture that's too broad, investors will label you as a dreamer who will chase everything and catch nothing. Successful entrepreneurs know that when resources are limited and you want to get to the moon, you have to put all of your gas into a single rocket. It is far better for one rocket to get into orbit than to have five get almost there. If you do need to allude to a broader picture in order to show a large enough market, then make sure that you describe them as phases, pointing out that you plan to focus like a laser on phase one before moving on to any future phases. I will say a word about patents, because I see a lot of startups wasting time and money on pointless patent applications. Some businesses do require patents. For example, if you've invented a new type of computer chip or chemical compound, then go for some IP protection. Most startups don't need patented IP. It is particularly difficult to get a meaningful patent on application software. Even if you get a patent, you most likely won't have the financial muscle needed to defend your patent from poachers. In some situations, 
I've seen patents actually hurt the startup founders who in hindsight accomplished nothing more than to publish their trade secrets in a concise form for large competitors to replicate. Many investors will urge you to get patent protection because they think this demonstrates the value of the intellectual property. And some patent attorneys always seem to suggest the same because, well, that's how they make money. You may or may not need a patent, and it may help or hurt you. But one thing is for certain. It's going to cost you a lot of money, time, and mindshare. Don't just go for a patent unless it is going to provide real value. Remember to do background checks on any potential investor. Most entrepreneurs are so excited to get handed a check that they don't stop to ask, who am I getting into bed with here? Believe it or not, there is a lot of money out there that you don't want. There are some investors who will give you 10K and think that you now work for them personally. Avoid people who might be investing money that they can't afford to lose and non-accredited investors who don't meet the minimum legal wealth standard definition. If things go badly, unaccredited investors have many more legal rights to claim that they were somehow tricked into investing or misled. There are a lot of mean people in this world who love drama and intrigue above all else, even financial return. God help you if you get attached at the hip to one of those psychopaths. Always run a background check on individual investors, paying specific attention to the number of lawsuits with which they have been involved. If they have other investments, make sure you call up those founders for a direct reference. Like most of my lessons, I learned this one the hard way. I took a small investment from a guy who ran his own medical business. A year and a half later, when my startup was doing well and his investment was worth many times over what he had paid, he stormed into my office saying that he was in the midst of a nasty divorce. He wanted me to write a letter to a judge saying that the company would not allow him to split his shares with his ex-wife. I said that the company had no policy like that and that it would be wrong for me to do such a thing so he made up the story anyway and told the same in court. When I was subpoenaed, under oath, I had to contradict his story, saying that I had said nothing like that to him. He was held in contempt by the court, and so he sued me personally for $1 million. He also sued the company and each of my board members. My attorney said that he was certain we could win this case, but that it would be very time-consuming, take a few years, and cost up to $50,000 in legal fees. So I held my noise and offered the plaintiff $20,000 to drop the suit. He refused. Three years and almost exactly 50K in legal fees later, the final appeals ran out and all charges were thrown out. Even worse, while in the midst of all this, I found myself in due diligence with a Fortune 1000 acquirer for my company. The acquirer almost backed out of a lucrative exit for us because of this legal entanglement that they did not want to inherit. I was able to get the deal closed, but only by setting aside millions of dollars in an escrowed contingency fund until the matter was settled. Had I taken a few minutes to check, I would have seen that this seemingly professional gentleman had been involved in nine other lawsuits. Vetting my potential investors since has worked well for me, as I have not been involved in any lawsuits since, but I have seen some sad things. 
I've seen situations that required a unanimous vote of all investors where one mean bastard literally told all of the other investors that he would not sign off on the deal unless he personally got some preferred payout above everyone else. I've seen an investor try to cut off other sources of cash for his own portfolio company because he wanted to force it into bankruptcy and take it over. He actually called the company's strategic partner that was about to invest the funds needed and lied to that CEO, saying he should not invest because the entrepreneur was not trust or creditworthy. Mean and unethical people are like landmines. There are not too many of them, but if you engage one, it is going to hurt. They can be investors, partners, and employees. Character matters so always try to ascertain the nature of people before you get too involved with them. Mean people give off clues to their nature if you pay attention. Watch how they treat the waiter who screws up their meal at a lunch meeting. Use some of the probing interviewing techniques discussed later in this book, and if you even get a hint of a mean vibe, don't walk, run the other way. I love parables and fables that illustrate a life principle in a memorable way. You may recall the one about the snake who asked a duck for a ride to the other side of the river. The duck was obviously concerned, but the snake persuaded the duck by reasoning, Why would I bite you when that would only cause both of us to drown? Halfway across the river, the snake could no longer help himself and bit the duck. As they both sank under the water, the duck asked why, to which the snake replied, Well, you knew I was a snake. Unfortunately, our litigious system in the U.S. makes it almost worth someone's time to sue you without any merit at all. If you are in business, it is not if, but when you will be facing a legal entanglement. You will be accused of fraud, discrimination, sexual harassment, and more by charlatans simply because they can. If you have a business, they figure that you must have some money that they can get. When they sue or threaten to sue you, do your best to pacify them or pay them off quickly, no matter how much you have to hold your nose while doing it. Remember that bankers aren't emotional. They stay focused on the bottom line. They don't say things like, it's the principle of the thing, because you can't take principle to the vault. You are going to get screwed sometimes just for being there. It's not fair because the world is not fair. The best you can do is suck it up and minimize the distraction and cost as much as possible so that you and your team can refocus on the business as quickly as possible. You may not naturally gravitate towards fundraising, accounting, or cash flow management, but these are important parts of your business. Remember that most failed ventures list undercapitalization as the primary reason for their demise. It is often said that a well-funded mediocre idea has a better chance of success than an underfunded great idea. You don't have to be a banker or have a degree in finance, but you must be comfortable wearing the banker's hat to make your ventures succeed. That concludes this chapter of The Startup Hats, Master the Many Roles of the Entrepreneur by David Gardner. If you like this chapter and you can't wait for the next one in a week, you can download and listen to the entire audiobook on Audible. Startup Hats is sponsored by Forest Firm, a full-service law firm and certified B Corporation with offices across North Carolina and clients around the globe. 
The Forest Firm mission is to provide legal services that consistently exceed client expectations, create healthy, sustainable work environments for professionals, and positively impact the communities where they live and work. For more information, head on over to forestfirm.com. For more information on the work that David Gardner is doing with his venture capital firm, visit cofounderscapital.com. Startup Hats is a production of EarFluence and read by me, Dave Clark. You can find more information on EarFluence podcast at earfluence.com.